0: It's a joy to be with you this morning, and I'm glad that you could be here together and worship in person. For those who are joining us online, we welcome you, we're grateful for you, and for the part that all of you play in bringing out the gospel and taking it into the world. And so we pray that's the case, that you'll be not troubled by any of the things that are around you, but in everything realize that, Lord, you are working out, the Lord is working out his purposes, bringing about his will in the world. And so don't fear. You have a long view of history, don't you? You know that difficult times are going to come, and more and more as we see the day approaching, so that shouldn't bother you. Uh, You know that the Lord will align the world in such a way that when he raptures the church, it will be joined under one head, so it shouldn't bother you to see that that's the case now. Don't be in any fear. Don't, Don't worry or struggle be about the giving of the gospel, be about salt and light as you do the things the Lord has set before you each day. I'd like you if you would. It is our continued study through books of First and Second Corinthians. If you've not been with us for a while or if this is your first time, we have been working verse by verse, which is our habit, through the Word of God, particularly here, these two letters from the Paul, Apostle Paul. And one of the most, I think, as we think about this passage and all that we've studied, we've, we've really taken several weeks, numerous weeks, to lay a foundation. As we finished uh, chapter 7, we really took a, a detour, if you will, to really lay a foundation for the remarkable things that we're going to see in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And so we took some time to lay a foundation from the Word of God on uh, what, how we should approach this passage. Because if we just walk into this passage and you see kind of the things that are going on here, it's easy to say there's no way that I could ever accomplish that. And so we took some time, and so last time we were together, Last Sunday, we had our uh, PTA service and communion. It was a joy to be with you. And then the time before that, the Sunday before that, we kind of laid the contextual foundation of this particular passage. And so it was our joy to do that and kind of give you an idea. But if you think about one of the most recognizable, really, if you think about the Lord's provision for us, one of the most heartening promises in all the Scripture as it relates to God's provision for us surely has to be found in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean... Just listen to the clear promise from the Word of God. Unambiguous, no small print at the bottom, just this. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's quite a promise, isn't it? Doesn't have any exceptions, anything that down at the bottom that say unless you do X or whatever. For the believer, Paul wrote to the Philippian church, one of these churches in Macedonia, actually, and said, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Jesus. And that's a foundation. If you understand that passage, that's a foundation for our confidence in this life. And so, certainly as it relates to giving, which is what we're really talking about as we get into chapter 8 and 9, there's a great story that really illustrates the point of the passage. Immediately following the close of World War II and the destruction of most of Europe, as the Allies were, and the people of Europe really began the rebuilding process, there was a tremendous tragedy of all the orphans. You may have read about this. It's as a number of just heartrending stories. And the Allies really took the brunt of dealing with all the orphaned children, and, and camps were built to provide housing and food and care for all of these children. And there were so many children in need that it really overtaxed the room available, and the camps had to continually be enlarged to supply for the growing need. The best food that could be found and the finest care that could be given was administered, but despite all of that, it was found that even some children who had been in these camps numerous weeks would not sleep. Even though their needs were being met, the children stayed awake all night. Those who ministered in the camps tried very hard to determine the cause of the problem. They spoke at length with the children and eventually determined what the problem was. So each night as they put the children to bed in those very large dormitories, the last thing that would happen after they were placed in bed was a lady would come down the aisle with a cart full of little loaves of bread, and she would put one into every little hand that wanted one. And in a matter of a few weeks, they were all sleeping through the night. People who were working there realized that even though the children were completely cared for during the day, experience had taught them Having food today did not mean they would have it tomorrow. And it was the fear of not having anything to eat the next day which kept them awake and worried. But once they closed their hand around the loaf of bread, the fear was dispelled because of the security of tomorrow. And the illustration falls far short, of course, but I think that the loaf of bread that God places in the hand of every believer is Philippians 4.19 regardless of where you may be and in your, in your life, or whatever season you may be in, Paul said very confidently, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So in other words, we have nothing to fear for tomorrow, and it was the Apostle Paul's full assurance that the promise of God is that he will meet every single need. And that should have a powerful impact on how you live, beloved, you know, to be honest, because you're not properly operating by yourself in securing the future. It's not just you who's going to make sure tomorrow's okay. Yes, we know where to work, and we've certainly looked at that in Scripture, and we're supposed to save and we're supposed to plan. Those are all parts of how we're supposed to handle what the Lord gave us, and we had all that background. And yes, we know where to plan for the needs of the family, and to take care of our debt, all these things we understand, and we're to give generously, and we can do all of that with this confidence that God will supply all of our needs, and that is a promise that takes care of every worry and every fear. And in our passage, we have believers who live like that, which is the remarkable thing about this study, and we saw the context of this passage last time we were together in in this letter. So... Let's get back to our passage and glean from it what the Holy Spirit would have us know and really prompt us to respond, and that's the idea, the way we should. Now turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, if you would, and let's just read down through verse 4. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to the chur- in the churches of Macedonia, and that is the church of Philippi, the church of Thessalonica, and the church at Berea. That in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us, verse 4, with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. They understood the promises of God to the point that they were secure for their future, so they could give generously in the present. And we saw last time they gave for two reasons, which is still true today. They gave to support those who ministered, and they gave to to support those who had need. And so they were willing to do that, and they understood what they needed to do, and even in the difficult times, which we're going to look at in just a minute, they understood that they were secure in their future. And Paul's going to make numerous points as we work our way through these two chapters, and they're going to become our principles to put in our minds, and then as we come to comprehend that this is the model from the, New, from the New Testament, or the standard for the way we manage what we give, and then we're going to follow through then in obedience. And now you have all the background you need to understand that God owns everything, everything belongs to Him, it's just a gift to us, a loan, if you will, all those kinds of things. And We'll go back through all that, but if you missed some of that, I encourage you to go back on Spotify are back on the YouTube channel, and you can catch those and lay that foundation so you understand all of these things. But the first principle that we see here, as we look at this passage, and then we need to understand in, in light of everything that we've studied so far, principle number one, giving is the normal action of dedicated believers. It is the normal action of dedicated believers. And we've seen that over and over and over again. It's not isolated just to the New Testament. It is all throughout the Word of God. I don't think we can really come away with any other understanding. It is the normal action of dedicated believers. And now there are some some common characteristics of this normal action of dedicated believers, and that's what we're going to see as we look at this early part of this verse. And the first one is, it's God's grace in the lives of people. That's the first one. God's grace at work in the lives of people. Now, look at, if you would, at verse 1 and we'll kind of get an idea where we're pulling all this out, okay? We wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So the motive, then, for their generosity was not human kindness. It wasn't to assuage their conscience. It wasn't an act of philanthropy like we see in the corporate world. What motivated them was God's grace at work in their hearts. And that's a lot different than normal human giving. And we've seen much different than it would be considered normal giving in the church because I gave you all those statistics when we first started. And much different from what the world would call decent in nature of the human heart because all that type of giving has in common one thing. They stop short of altering one's chosen lifestyle. The element of sacrifice is not there because God's grace at work in the transformed heart always has intrinsically involved sacrifice. And Why is that? Well, That's our example from him, isn't it? We just talked about that. He became sin who knew no sin. That's sacrifice, isn't it? The gift of God to us. He was rich and became poor for our sakes. And and that makes us, that grace that's at work is going to make us sensitive to new life. It's going to make us aware of our true purpose. It will give us a desire for godly things. It's going to make us love heaven more than earth. It's going to give us a desire to see kingdom things happen. See, all that is part of the grace of God at work in people. And that's a lot different than what you normally see at work in the church and what you normally see in the culture. And that's what's behind this giving, see. Saving grace, they're believers, sanctifying grace. They've been transformed day by day. And this type of grace produces this Matthew 6.33 kind of attitude. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Everything else is moved to the background. There are things that we have to do, no question. But it's this, the same kind of grace that helps us not to love the world or the things that are in the world. See? When grace is at work in your heart, you don't love the world or the things in the world. The same grace that makes us set our thoughts on things above and not on things on the earth. It's the same grace that prompts us to desire the word of God more than gold or jewels. Or to bear one another's burden. That same grace bears helps you bear others' burdens. And the grace that's at work helps you pray for one another and build each other up. Those and so many more are all caused by grace. This is grace at work. In the, it's a naturally occurring thing, an event that occurs in the life of the believer. Grace poured out is at work in these kinds of things. It's, it's that work that God's doing and those who really have discovered who Christ is. So principle number one, giving is the normal act, dedicated believers. Common characteristic, number one, God's grace is at work in the lives of people. And number two, it's not impacted by hardship. Let's look at the rest of verse two. That in a great ordeal of affliction. So that's where they are. Even though the Macedonians were in the midst of hardship, they still gave. Hardship had no negative effect. You know, they didn't just go, you know, hey, you know, kind of difficult times here, won't be able to do anything this month, sorry. Sorry. You know, you know we, we don't know what our future's gonna be, so because we don't know what our future's gonna be, we really can't be concerned about somebody else. They weren't saying that. They didn't say, you know, Rome has siphoned off all of our economic prosperity. I've translated for today, you know, taxes are high, a bear market, and cost of living is up. Can't really do anything, you know, sticking all I have to make it, you know, it wasn't, you know, I'm having a tough job, time at my job because I'm a Christian, so I can't do anything. None of those excuses, see. You know. They were the great ordeal of affliction. In Acts chapter 17, verse 5, it's a good illustration of what's going on in this environment of Macedonia. Paul is in Thessalonica, that's the context of this passage, so one of the churches of Macedonia. Paul and Silas are there, uh, God-fearing Greeks, it says, a number of leading women are believers, a very small group at this point. Now listen to what happens here, you can kind of get an idea of what's going on in the churches of Macedonia. But the Jews becoming jealous, so Paul has been teaching for Uh, Numerous days in the synagogue, and many are listening. And they become jealous, and they take along some wicked men from the marketplace, and they form a mob, and they set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. Sounds a lot like today, isn't it? When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd, and the city authorities who heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. So they got a bribe out of Jason, and then they released him to go. But this is the churches of Macedonia, very stirred up against the teaching of Christ and the gospel. And they really didn't know what their future was going to be. Would you, in this environment? What's the future going to be when you just have a riot and a mob constantly walking through the city. In human terms, they had no idea what the next day would hold. And remember, we talked about this before. Jews would lose jobs and businesses and family and all of that's going on. But the words Paul uses are even more intense. So he writes back to the church at Thessalonica and he says this to them. He says, he says you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So right in the middle of hardship and squeezing pressure, verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. And then later, he says in in chapter 2, he says for you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. So this is the environment of these churches in Macedonia. And then Paul writes to the Philippians, and that's one of the churches in Macedonia, he says this, "...only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. In other words, the fact that you have similar opponents that I had, Paul says, and Jesus had himself, the fact that that's the case, realize that that's a sign of salvation for you, that you're on the right side, and destruction for them. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. So here it is in the Church of Philippi as well. So when Paul says they were in a great ordeal of affliction, that great ordeal is the word severe test, the same word that's used to putting metal in a furnace to test it. They were in a severe test, and the test always reveals what? It always reveals character, because metal is purged in that fire of its impurities, and this church passed with high marks. And then it says, in a great ordeal of affliction, see. Philipsis, that's the word we've seen over and over again. That's pressure needed to crush grapes or olives. So there's a purging going on as if in a fire, and there's a squeezing going on as if in an olive press or a grape press. And that gives us some reference. So, What was on them was obviously greater than the average reasons we give, and we saw them earlier in our study, given in the churches today for not giving sacrificially and generously, which alters the lifestyle. Because they were obviously under more difficult circumstances than what we would experience. And in the midst of all of that, the Macedonians didn't develop a poor me attitude. You know, why are you asking us we got our own problems Attitude. It's in the middle of severe testing they gave because that's the normal action of dedicated believers. See, they live above their circumstances and they think about others and here they are ministering to people they've never met. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was poured out there. And that's what goes on in the lives of believers when they're controlled by the Spirit. So, principle number one, giving is the normal action of dedicated believers. Common characteristic one, God's grace at work in the lives of people. Secondly, it's not impacted by hardship, apparently. And thirdly, it is done with joy. Look at 2 Corinthians eight two, if you would. Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. So in other words, they weren't giving out of duty. They weren't pressured into giving. They're not giving because they expected something back from the people they gave to, some recognition or thanks or something. You see, And these are all concerns related to giving. Verse 2 just says they gave out of joy. In other words, they were pleased, they were content, they were satisfied, they were willing to do it for the joy that was there. They were living above their circumstances. All these other things we just talked about are still there. But when they gave, they just gave in joy. And we'll talk about this later on, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, as Paul is speaking to the church here in the later chapter, he says, each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a... Cheerful giver, and that's the way they gave. See, and then later it says, "For it's superfluous of me to write to you about this ministry to the saints." So this is a giving that is reaching out to people they have never even met, supporting those who have need that we saw last time. For I know your readiness, of which I will I boast about you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia. So he's talking to the Corinthian church. He says, "I know you're ready to give." I boasted to you about you to the Macedonians namely that Achaia, that's another province in southern Greece close to Corinth. They've been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So they were happy to do it. In fact, they were abundantly happy to do it. Their devotion to Christ and his kingdom and the church and their brothers in Christ overflowed with joy. So they had joy, not because of their circumstances, but in spite of it. And from a human perspective, many would look at their circumstances, and they could say this, right? I mean, they made their life more difficult than it was before, right, because of their generosity. In other words, they were already under extreme pressure, and they already had deep poverty, And but then they gave, and so they just made their life more difficult. That would be the human perspective from the whole thing, wouldn't it? But obviously, they had joy in being sensitive to new life, and being aware of their true purpose, and loving heaven more than earth, and seeking kingdom things to happen, and investing in eternity, and knowing they were more blessed to give than to receive, and knowing that God would measure back a greater amount than they gave. And we looked at all that, see? So all that is playing in the whole calculus of, okay, what do we do? And how do we respond to the need that's in Jerusalem? In spite of everything that's going on here, which is why Paul uses them as a snapshot of what it looks like to give in the New Testament time. And so they gave, and that's why it's our standard because that's the attitude, joy, that God wants in us. And we just saw that, right? God loves a cheerful giver. So, kind of working our way through here, just keep layering it up. Principle one, giving is the normal action of dedicated believers, common characteristics, God's grace at work in the lives of people. It's not impacted by hardship. It's done with joy. And fourthly, it's not hindered by a small income. Just kind of taking in everything. Look at Second Corinthians 8, 2. Then in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now, these folks didn't have much. We're not talking about an affluent church here. Poverty is the Greek noun "tokia." It's a word associated with destitution. Literally, the word is beggary in the Greek. It's from the verb to beg, tokeiouo. It's the same word used in Luke 16 to refer to Lazarus, Lazarus the beggar. So we understand what the word means. Paul describes the church here as in similar financial circumstances. But the church in Macedonia understood that their future was secure because my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So you mean you can be in deep poverty and the Lord will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? I would say that there are hundreds of millions of Christians around the world that would agree with that over and over and do say it in a heartbeat. But affluence tends to deaden us to that understanding, doesn't it? And as we talked about before, when we love money and we just want to put it away in our portfolio, that somehow we think insulates us from difficulty and so we don't worry about it so much, right? So this kind of strips away all of that falseness and just says, listen, true giving looks like this whatever circumstance you may be in, the heart attitudes are going to be the same. They understood their future was secure so they could be generous in the present. And beloved, that old excuse we talked about a few months ago, remember, if I had more, I would give more. Don't believe it. Remember, giving is not a matter of what you have. It's a matter of the heart and how you feel about what you have. Let's see. Remember Luke chapter 16, verse 10, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much... And this passage is about finances, okay? It's speaking about that. We looked at it at length a number of months ago. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust true riches to you? Now, we went through all of what true riches look like, and we understand that it's talking about money. So, basically, the idea is this. If you're faithful, you're faithful. Don't say, if I had more, I'd give more. Because if you're not giving off what, the $10 you have now then what what are you going to do with 100? You won't be faithful to that either. And the implication of Luke 16 is that it might be very little. You're faithful in very little, faithful also in much. So it could be that it's very little that you work with. And so if you believe and you trust and are obedient, as we saw before, it always comes down to those things. In little, you will believe and trust and be obedient in much. The giving is the model for this Corinthian church and for Berea. It's not hindered by a small income and fifthly, as a common characteristic, it's generous. It's generous. Look at second Corinthians 8:2 in your copy of God's Word, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Now we know they were poor, don't we? We understand that. So, the word wealth is not referring to houses or land or possessions. They overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, but we understand that they were in beggary. So, what were they rich in? They were rich in their liberality. That's the Greek noun, aplotes. This is a virtue of one who is free from pretense and hypocrisy. That's what it means someone who is not self-seeking, and the virtue really is manifested by an openness of heart, manifesting itself in generosity. So they weren't rich in things, see. They were rich in heart. They were rich in their attitude toward giving, towards being generous, and this is where the Lord does his measurements. This is where Jesus measured the widow and her two copper coins, remember? She's given more than anybody else who came in. Without a doubt, she'd given in monetary terms, the very least that could be given. But when he evaluated her giving, what was he evaluating? He was evaluating her heart. He didn't condemn her, did he? he say, well, she's given all she had to live on. He didn't say anything about that, because my God will supply. What is it, beloved? All your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You see, faithful giving always is connected to that security. The security is not in what you've laid up. The Lord doesn't want to give you something because you wouldn't have anything apart from him. He doesn't want to give you something and then have you replace him with it. See, it's... The Lord measures it a lot differently than we do. And Jesus measured the widow her two copper coins and honestly, someone may have a lot and give out of their abundance and give a lot and be poor where it really matters because they don't have the virtue of athletics. They may give a lot, but the liberal heart, the, un, the unpretentious heart, the heart without hypocrisy, the one that doesn't say, well, maybe I shouldn't give so much, and goes back and forth. See, you may give a lot and be poor and Just a little bit more about that virtue of liberality, aplotation. The Greek letter alpha is placed at the beginning of the word, and it allows it to mean the opposite. We do that in English, you know this, with the letter A, for instance, the word moral, we put "moral" behind it. One means ethical and decent and proper, and the other means unethical and unscrupulous. So this is the same here. And the word that Paul's creating really is an opposite for the word of duplicity or double-mindedness. Literally the word for to plate or to weave cords together. In other words, weaving a bunch of thoughts and impulses together trying to make a final product. Paul says, no. When You're struggling with all the different things that you're thinking about. That's not what we want, says in giving. Ascidarian believers had one chord. They had singleness, simplicity, sincerity. The double-minded heart is trying to weave together. You know, I recognize there's a need, but there's me to think about. So get that chord, and then I'd like to help meet the need, but there might not be enough left for me uh, when I when um, I give for me to have what I want. So get that chord and try to weave that in there. You know, I recognize the shortfall. It's a legitimate ministry that's happening, but I'm not sure God will come through for me, and then I'd like to be liberal and and I'd like to be single-minded about it. See, you're trying to just weave that together into something that's pleasing to the Lord and the Lord says, that's not what I want. I want a single-minded understanding of what it looks like to give as an outflow of the Holy Spirit's work in your life. See, getting all those cords together, that's that's double-mindedness, see. And that's the opposite of our model in the Macedonians. They weren't plating a bunch of conflicting feelings together to finally come up with the right thing to do, see. Their virtue was liberality, singleness of mind. They were perfectly fine with meeting a need when it was revealed to them, and a small and a small amount of income didn't make any difference. And it was done with joy, and it wasn't impacted by hardship. No matter what was going on in their mind, they still had singleness of mind. God's work of grace in the lives of people, so, and that's not dependent on circumstances. Paul's interaction with the Macedonians in Philippians two, he says it really says it all. Make my joy complete," he says, "by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in per- spirit, intent on one purpose. That is singleness, isn't it? You're not weaving in. I know we want to be of the same mind, but I've got some ideas. I know we're going to be united in spirit, but you know I don't really like that person. You know I know we have a purpose that we're supposed to do, but I think we should do watching other things as well. See." So Paul tells the Philippians, and, and even though they were part of that, this church in Macedonia, churches in Macedonia, and they had liberality, he just reminds them, this is what it looks like. The same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. See, that's weaving in something that shouldn't be there. That's a bunch of strands, and we're not supposed to have those. See, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. See? Has everything to do with singleness of purpose. It's not talking about putting yourself down or uh, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. You see. And the Macedonian believers were rich in that single-minded devotion to God and His purposes that resulted in generosity. That was the grace at work. The battle over being obedient to God, Luke six thirty-eight: "Given that shall be given to you." Press down, shake it together and overflowing. That was won. We won that battle. Battle of truly believing God in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. That battle was won. See. That says give and it should be given. Obedience. Okay. I'm going to obey. It's more it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Okay, I believe that, Lord. I'm going to have more blessing by giving something away than have something given to me. That battle's won, see. Battle over trusting God in Philippians 4.19. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. I don't have much this month, but I'm still going to give. I'm going to be single-minded because that's what I'm supposed, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to be obedient to God, and that's what grace looks like in the life of believers. And it's not hampered by any of these other things we talked about. See, that battle is won for them. The me battle is won, and that's what God assesses, see. And that's why these believers are here. And that's why the believers in the early church in Jerusalem are here. That's why the widow and the two copper coins is here. Remember the the early early church? They didn't count as anything they had as belonged to them. If there was need, they made sure it was met. A singleness of mind. That's why the Macedonians are here. That's why the widow with the two copper coins is in Scripture. And from the other side, that's why the foolish businessman from Luke 12 is there. He was rich in everything but heaven. So he's the opposite example. God looks at the heart. And where there is single-mindedness, the amount doesn't matter. See. Now look at verse 3, 2 Corinthians 8 three. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So giving is the normal action of dedicated believers from a heart that's controlled by grace and not impacted by hardship and filled with joy and not hindered by a small income and it is honest. It's honest. What do I mean by that? Well, if you look at the passage, the qualifying statement for this principle is found in verse 12. And we'll look at it more in depth later, but just to say, in Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, for if the readiness is present, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. In other words, what you have Mark this, beloved, is known by God. What you actually have. I don't know what you have. If people sit next to you, they don't know what you actually have. But the Lord knows what you have. Okay? God knows your resources and your choices. He knows both of those things. He knows your resources. He knows your choices. He knows what you have. And Paul says in verse 3, about this church. He says, I testify. Now, remember, Paul is there among them. In other words, Paul says, I have firsthand knowledge of this fact. I'm not guessing. I planted these churches. I've helped them to grow. I know their leadership. I know their heart. This hasn't been passed down to me from someone else. I know personally their financial position. So he says, for I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord kata dunamen, according to their ability. The dunamen is the same word we use, we see used in Romans 16. The gospel is of Christ is the power of God unto salvation. The word has to do with power, capability, capacity, or their means. That's the best way to look at it as we look at this passage. Paul says, I testify that according to their ability. Paul says, I know what their ability is. I know what their means truly are. They gave as they were able. And I know this for a fact, Paul says. And this is where the word honesty really comes into play. They gave of what they actually had, or what they had, if you will, power over. God knows what you have power over. He knows your choices. He knows your, your resources. So Paul says, I know what they had. I know what they have power over. And as a footnote, it really, again, does away with a fixed amount, doesn't it? The, hey, once I give that, you know, I'm done. am done. thought process. Because Paul could have just as easily, if the Holy Spirit would have carried him along, gave them a fixed amount. He could have said, for I testify that they gave their 10% like they should have. Right? I mean, he could have said anything he wanted as the Holy Spirit carried him along. He could have said that, couldn't he? They gave their tithe. That's what we use when we say 10th, because we get that from the Old Testament, which isn't a crossover to the New. They gave their tithe, and so they're good. No, Paul says, I know what their resources are, I know what their choices are, I know what their capacity, what they had power over, and knowing that, according to their ability, so what they had power over, beyond that, they gave of their own accord, see? First Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, speaking of the same collection for support of those who had need. Remember, two reasons the church gave, support those who lead and support those who are in need. And they're supporting this Jerusalem church. Now, verse 1 says this in 16.1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week, each one of you is to, mark this, put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And this is the idea expressed in verse 3. See, giving that's honest is giving that's based on what you have control over what you can say yes or no to, in proportion, then, to what you've earned. It comes from a straightforward, truthful, honest evaluation of what you have power over. NIV says it this way. I like this. This kind of gives you the same idea in different words. NIV takes it this way. It says, now about the collection for the Lord's people, so we know where it's going, church of Jerusalem, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money here it is, in keeping with your income. So the honesty comes in and you know how much you actually bring in, saving it up so that when I come no collections will have to be made. In other words, begin to set it aside so there's no duplicity later on. And you all know how this goes, right? If you don't give off the top when you are paid, what ends up happening? You erode it away slowly, don't you? I mean, the, the temptation is that. It's temptation for all of us. If you don't give right away, as you've purposed in your heart over what you have control over, it's easy to begin to whittle it down. And then, if you wait a few weeks in, uh, after you were paid, there might be a half of what used to be there. See. So, what you have control over, Paul says. Listen, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. You understand what you have control over, and then set aside a portion concerning that. Again, he could have said each one of you should set aside your ten percent of what you brought in. The Holy Spirit could have carried him right along to say that, but he didn't say that. See, it was in relation. To what came in. Obviously, now just as a side note, not charging it to your credit card and going into debt. okay? Because that's spending money the Lord hasn't given you yet, and we've already talked about that. So he's not pleased with that. Don't, don't think somehow, well, I'll go into debt with my credit card and I'll give to the Lord, and that's going to be good. That's not going to be good. okay? Because it presumes on the Lord that you'll still have a job two weeks from now, and because that's the money you're spending right now. So we went through all of that. You can go back and catch that. So it's not necessarily a fixed amount or a percentage. We're to give out of, summing up what we've read, how much, out of how much we've been blessed, or out of how much we've earned, or how much we prospered, or what is within our power. As we are honestly able, and that works well with the next common characteristic of the heart, number seven, 1 Corinthians 8.3, seventhly, willing to embrace sacrifice. That's based on the next part of verse three. Look at, Look at verse three, if you would. For I testify, so Paul says, I know what they had power over according to their ability. And then he says, and beyond their ability. They gave of their own accord. And the meaning just seems obvious as we tie it together with the principles of honesty in relation to proportion and sacrifice. We can say they gave of what they had within their power, what they had power over, in proportion to how they prospered. And they did that, catch this, to the extent that it was sacrificial. They did it to the extent that it was sacrificial. They really applied the passage from Matthew 6.24. And we looked at this at length, but I want to remind you of it because it's so rich and powerful. No one can serve two masters. Again, speaking about money. We took almost half a message with this passage a number of weeks ago. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other one way or another, money and the Lord. Either you're going to love one, despise one, or you're going to despise one and love one, and you're just switching the focus. You cannot serve God and wealth. Just to be clear, Matthew's carried along to say that. Jesus uh, taught his disciples. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on See, because if you're concerned with that, you're going to be consumed with what? With money. And you're not going to be thinking about what the Lord would have you do. So don't be consumed with that. And here's the question. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's the question. What's the answer, beloved? You'll have to answer that. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? Are you, beloved? Yes. 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 And who's putting your worth on you? The Lord is. And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to your life? And what's the answer? No one. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. And yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown under the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? What's the answer? Yes. You of little faith, do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek All these things don't be like the world as it evaluates what you have. For your Heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Is that a surprise to you, beloved? Not at all, is it? For my God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. everything goes in second and third place and on back. These guys believed and trusted that promise from Jesus. And that's really not too much to ask, is it? Is that too much to ask? To believe a promise that Jesus gave? That's just the bare minimum, isn't it? To believe and trust the promises of Jesus? Surely that's not too much to ask. But you can say that you believe and trust all day long, but until you act on it, it's just words. And the, these guys believed and trusted that promise, and giving down according to the New Testament standard will always contain an element of sacrifice. And we're going to finish up with this last principle for today in the end of verse 3. We'll get through the end of verse 3. We're almost out of time. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord. So our eighth mark of, of true heart of giving New Testament giving is done intentionally. And the idea here is their own accord. That's an adjective in the Greek. Willing of oneself. That's a literal translation. Willing of yourself. So it was their wish. It was their desire. It was voluntary. So it was generated from a heart which is controlled by the Lord. They weren't forced. They weren't intimidated. Catch this. They were not manipulated into doing something or shamed into doing it, okay? They gave of their own accord. They were willing of oneself apart from any outside influence they determined to give in the manner that we've looked at so far. And knowing that that's not necessarily a fixed amount, see, it's not necessarily a percentage, honestly evaluating the portion that we receive, we're to give out of that, out of how much we've been blessed, how much we've earned, How we have prospered, what's within our power, as we're able. Willing to embrace sacrifice, and that is in proportion to how we prosper. And they did that to the extent that it was sacrificial, obviously altering their lifestyle. So you know you're right where you need to be if it's taken away an opportunity to do something that you'd like to do with whatever it is that you gave away. Giving is done intentionally giving this done voluntarily. They weren't forced. They weren't intimidated. They weren't emotionally manipulated. Let's run the plates through again and just remember all the orphans. Okay, That's not how that works. It's a process of thinking about what you should be giving out of how the Lord's blessed you and you know what you have power over and then going through single-mindedly in that manner. They They weren't coerced. They wanted to do it. It was of their own accord. And they no doubt sat down, beloved, and they figured it out because that's what we're supposed to do, and I don't think we can come away with anything else here. And and of everything we've looked at in these last two verses, really, uh, the three things that really encapsulate this concept of free will offerings are grace-prompted giving, which is the heart of New Testament giving. Now, and once again, we're going to go through an understanding of biblical free will giving as opposed to tithing at the end of our study, and I'm going to fill in the other parts for you so you can see and make a legitimate argument in your own mind about uh, why the tithe teaching is wrong and how we're actually supposed to approach it. I think you're getting the, the feel of it already, because Paul and Peter could have said whatever they wanted to say, but the Holy Spirit carried them along to say what they did say, and so we can get an idea of what that's supposed to look like, and we're out of time, so let's close in prayer. If you will, bow with me. Let's really to commit our way to the Lord and, and really seal this teaching up in our heart. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your Word. We say that all the time. We don't mean it any less because we repeat it so often we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the clear way it presents your thoughts and for us to understand your mind. It was given for us to know and to understand what it says, what it means by what it says, and then how does that apply. And Father, I pray that you'll keep us firmly in that stream. We don't have to come up with anything new. We don't have to be exciting or or somehow create some new thing that makes people think, wow, we just have to say what you say. Take it from the kitchen to the table without spilling it up. And Father, I pray that's what I'll do, that your people will grow. They were made for your word, to hunger after it, and we're more more keen on being in it when we're done on Sunday than we were when we started. And Father, I pray that you'll take us straight from here, as we start our week, that each day we'll set aside time to pray and to be in your word, reading through your word cover to cover each year, that we might know what it says and have an understanding of the Holy Spirit's will for us, one will for everybody. Objective understanding of what the word of God says and acting on it. In that respect, in the way that we do that, we are mature believers. It doesn't matter how much time we've gone to church, it doesn't matter how many positions we've held in church, it doesn't matter uh, what we've done or or what uh, our accomplishments may be, you measure maturity based on our understanding of what your word says, what it means by what it says, and whether or not we do it. And Lord, I pray that we'll be mature, believers, like the Bereans of old, who studied your word, understood what it said, and acted on it. Thank you that you caught that church along with Galatians and Philippi up into Church in Thessalonica, up into these churches of Macedonia, that we could use and see that you've used as an example of what it looks like when it's grace prompted giving, handling finances in the way you would have us do it. Lord, keep us insulated from the cares of the world. You have provided all of our needs according to your riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Uh, keep us insulated from the worry that uh, most of the world is caught up in now for the thoughts about tomorrow and what. Uh, the unknown. We know that you hold the future and that you've got good things planned for those who who are yours. And so, Lord, I pray we'll find comfort in those things this week. Be faithful salt and light. Give the gospel when we have opportunity open our mouth, open the ears and hearts of those who hear and open your word that they might understand. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen.